Christian. That's not how we're going to start our shows. Why not? Look, I appreciate the listener feedback, but... Okay, so here's the thing. I get to decide what I want to say first. You can't stop me from saying what I want to say first. Although you could edit it out. Absolutely, yeah. So, but, but I think I will try on a somewhat consistent basis to always say, Hi, Christian. And you can say what you want. Is this the show? <laughs> this is what people tune in for. Oh, boy. <laughs> what are we talking about today? I don't we know. We don't have a guest. That's true. Right. No, and it was this. This isn't because anybody fell through. Um, no, this was actually by design. We, by design. we decided it would be fun to. Well, I do think we wanted to talk about casebook stuff, but in addition, uh, I think we thought it would just be fun to get to chat to each other. We. We've we do had that every so now many great then. guests. Every and now and then we want to do that. Yeah, right? every, every few shows it'll just be you and me and we'll kind of run down, you know, stuff going like on. It's like the Bee in the Bonnet show. Right, right. So we've talked, um, when it's just been you and me, we had we talked about um, the tyranny of, of Microsoft Word. We have talked about that. Um, what else? I don't even remember. There were some... We talked e- about Duck Dynasty in the very first episode. <laughs> we did. Right, episode zero. Yeah. And um, not only did we talk about the tyranny of Word, we talked about uh, some... Some text file stuff, some little bit of typeface and uh, document design stuff, and although we could certainly do more of that. And of course, our the origin of our obsession with the law of speed traps. Oh my and, god, I'm so glad you brought that up. And and your, are, I have some follow you, up on speed traps. You do totally. Is this on a personal level? Is this the is this the Joe Redemption episode? Uh, not yet. So oh here's here's what happened. So. I was, uh, as you know, I was at the car dealer selling my car, and I sold them my car, and I asked them to give me a lift back into Athens. Mm -hmm. So they did, and in the car, uh, the little shuttle car, bringing me back into Athens, the driver was playing the radio, and it was uh, station 106.7, some sort of talk radio station. What? Wait, wait. A talk radio station at 106.7? Something like that. Seems incongruous. It was an FM station? It's set on the dial 106.7. Huh. Maybe it's like a talk period scheduled amid other things. Yeah. All I know our, is... Our listeners listen to podcasts. They don't even know about right, radio. Right. Exactly. This is all, you know, yeah. what is... You, what do you mean by radio? Yeah. Anyway. It's, it's primitive. The, uh, the host was having people call in about speed traps in what sounded like the Atlanta area. And whoa, so this whole the premise of this whole show oh, is a conspiracy. Even... It's a conspiracy to evade the law, the whole show, the premise of it. And you get so much better, you okay. don't even know. Okay. Okay. Um so the guy calls in, they're chatting about this and they're talking about some speed trap where it's, you know, uh the police are on an overpass or something and they so you can't see them as right. easily or whatever. So the the host, after the guy tells his story, the host senses, and I wish I could, you know, it'd be great to get this on tape or so link to something on the internet. Um, the host then says, and I just want to say that it is, a, it is everyone's moral and ethical duty <laughs> after you see a cop right. to flash your lights if I'm driving the other way to let me know. It's, and, then he, and then he pauses for effect and says, in fact, that's in the Bible. <laughs> 
And I was like, is wow. That, is that right? That's, that th- be, this is even more hardcore than Christian is about this That would stuff. be remarkable. It would if be remarkable on many about, levels. Is this... <laughs> What, presumably, <laughs> lights on a on a donkey or something like right, that. Well, I guess. presumably, I it's in it's in you know the it's in the last book of uh, it's in the apocalypse of Saint John or something. But um, I don't know. I mean, that I I just I don't recall that. It's in one of the prophetic books, undoubtedly. But uh, <laughs> yes, he said it was. He said it was your moral, ethical, ob- and biblical obligation. Well, longtime listeners of Oral Argument will uh, will know that that there was a string of. Uh, uh, there, there was a string of shows on which we talked at length about this issue of, of what our obligations and duties were with respect to speed traps. Yes, um, which I think we are all in agreement are an abomination. However, and, and I felt like he was reaching out and talking to me directly. Wait, now I'm starting to wonder did did this show come in like through your dental filling show? Or was it, was this, <laughs> well, that's well, that's actual? why I said I want to be able to link to something on the internet because right, to prove that you know, this did happened. it really happen? Yeah, this sounds now it sounds suspicious. It's a, it's first of all it's a talk show on FM radio, and then it's about the very thing we've been talking about, and now it feels like it's directly to you. Are, does does one hundred six point seven? Is that this? Is that something that could not be on AM radio? Right oh no, no, yeah, that's an FM station. That's an that's FM, station. FM station. Okay, yeah. No, yeah, well, we need to find. We need to look up what's what is the FM station at one hundred six point seven that you well, can get in Athens. Let, let me Let's ask find you this out. though, Joe. Do uh, maybe in satellite radio when you listen to FM radio, do you find the hosts often speaking to you in particular and telling <laughs> you to do things? <laughs> do they? <laughs> Um, this is this is a rare occurrence. Is no right? more so than anybody else does. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so, longtime listeners, and we we talked about this at length, and and in fact, uncovered a body of at least over a century old body, right? Of speed trap law, yep. and by speed trap law, that's our shorthand. That's our shorthand for the body of law which governs people who warn others of the existence of speed traps, and those people who warn others are they somehow. You know, liable for uh, um, uh, aiding and abetting, or involved right. in some conspiracy, or is there some ind- or obstruction of justice, as one judge found, right. or is there a First Amendment right, as another judge found, yes. to warn uh, others of the existence using the flashing of your lights? And is the flashing of your lights speech? Are there all these questions that come out of speed trap law, and we are the leading podcast authority, although not, on this we, although we are no longer the only one, because they they after they mentioned the biblical injunction that he imagined to exist, they then started to horn <laughs> in on our, on our territory because one of them made reference to the fact that the Florida Supreme Court. I have no idea if this is true, mm-hmm. but they made reference to the notion in this on this show that the Florida Supreme Court had ruled that you have a First Amendment right to flash your lights. Hmm. So they went right over the. You know, biblical exegesis of speed trap warnings, mm-hmm. right, and headlong into our domain of legal analysis. A straight from Jesus exegesis, if you will. It was. It mm. was Jesus exegesis. <laughs> Fla- flash thy lights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> flash, thy li- flash thy lights, lest, lest you be trapped. Honor thy co-drivers. Oh, my goodness. It was in, it was insane. He and did, were you did you were you nudging the the driver of the shuttle and and were you telling him you know that we were I was not although he, I have to say he was heartily endorsing what he was hearing on the radio. He thought all of it was um, and, completely on point, direct, and and exactly <laughs> correct. And it does. <laughs> and I was just sitting in the back enjoying the floor show. Right, right. Well, because I was amazed. Right, and. 
the thing about Joe that uh, the the other piece of information I've withheld is that um, through these episodes uh, during which we spoke about this topic, we uncovered that Joe is in fact a monster. Uh, apparent, yes, I am a monster. According to all of you people, so Joe, on a behavioral basis, simply does not and has not flashed his lights to warn others of the existence of speed traps. It's true. For a while, he was trying to maintain that this was. Because of, uh, he thought it wouldn't serve any purpose because lights can't be seen during the day. Joe it, seemed to think you cannot see lights during the day. It does strike me as as odd that you would be able to see someone's a momentary flash of someone's headlights in broad daylight. I do think that's odd. I continue to think that's odd. Ugh. Well, well I although think- as I reported, I'm hardly withholding things, you jackass. Because as I reported, I'm the one who did the test of lights in the day in the parking garage. Right. I, I, I'm. Yeah, I, I think we. So can I'm agree not that, trying to hide my monstrosity. I think we agreed about the oddity part of that. Um, I, I also, you know, I applaud you studying things. Um, that you know, this is there this is go. like good science, people. Right. Going out and, and testing things which even are obvious to everybody else. Even reprobates like me can advance our understanding by engaging in empirical testing behaviors. I feel like we should ask Tom Goldstein about this one. Maybe we had not. him on the show. I don't know. I, I, we didn't ask Nathan about it last week. So we didn't. We've blown lots of opportunities to. We have. We really down. cement our. I didn't know that we. Were, I didn't know we were being. You know, kind of encroached upon by. Yeah. Now that we're being challenged, amateurs. amateurs. Yes. Now that we're being challenged, we need to. You know, do the proverbial peeing on something to mark it, to make sure that people know that it's our territory. You, you mean again proverbial? You don't. Mean, I did not say that. Gonna, I yeah. said. I said prover- I, mar- I, I said that right up front. You did. You did. I just didn't know if you also meant you wanted to pee on something. I don't know. Okay. Because this is a family show. It is a family show. Mm-hmm. Families pee, not together usually, <laughs> but they pee. Oh. People in a family. This has gone. This, you know, there's still that listener out there who <laughs> who gave us a B. Yeah. Four stars out of five. So what know? else are we going to talk about today? If you, don't like, if you don't like the, the, the... By the way, there's a war going on on our iTunes reviews about that. A about couple, what? A couple other people have come in and, and, and tried to solidify our five-star rank. Ooh. One of them responding directly to the four-star person, <gasps> saying he, that this reviewer knows this, this reviewer. Oh, my God. And, and believes that there's some psychological explanation. Anyway, I, I, go check out our iTunes reviews. I will do that. And, I didn't uh, realize it had become a, a killing field. Well, I, I just think that we have some loyal listeners who were upset about this low mark that we were getting. But look, it's all we're you and I are about promoting the peace and the love. We don't. I don't want there to be strife that we generate. So, you know, I I want all of our listeners to have some charity toward each other. To, um, you know. It's tough. Out. Life's tough. Yeah. It's hard out there. Mm-hmm. All right. You ready? You ready for me to start? We're to start now? Yeah, are you ready to start? Yeah. This is a little warm up. Hi, Christian. Just, <laughs> that's not how we start the show. Okay. Uh, what else are we talking about today? Well, well we are going to talk... We, we are going to talk about textbooks. Don't, don't, don't hit stop. Don't okay, hit what? stop. Don't hit stop. I'm no. just talking to the listeners. I mean, I said yeah, we're going to talk I about can't textbooks. hit stop. I don't... I'm not near the computer. You, so. What if you could? I wouldn't. This is a fascinating topic, I think. Well, that's so it's it's more uh we're going to talk about it from the perspective of law and law school. Yeah. You know, this is one of the episodes we'll do about learning law, but I think it, it what we're going to talk about today, what we're going to talk about today extends I think beyond learning law 
because at least my thoughts on this extend to the rest of the academy and even into high school, K through 12. I, sure. I, we're going to talk about the, the materials one uses to, to, to uh, learn a subject. Right. Should we launch right into that or you want to talk about anything else? Uh, let's launch right into it. The infrastructure of, of learning, which includes, you know, learning materials, the tools of learning. Right. Um, and we, we have firsthand experience with it now as people who teach law and therefore have to select teaching materials and use teaching materials. Uh, we also, of course, have experience when we were law students, we've experienced from when we were undergraduate students, um, etc. I think some of the problems that exist today in the law textbook market also exist in other educational textbook markets. Should I come in here with my top line thought about Please all this, do. and then, I, and then I, will I, will hear, I will hear yours, and then we will. And then I need down. to do a I need to do a a full disclosure thing because a, a person could, if I didn't do a full disclosure thing, a person oh, no. could yeah, say yeah. that I was being unethical no, no, and no, not no, disclosing. Because no. we're going to talk about your the reason for your disclosure. We're going to talk about because I also we we both are not only consumers of these things, but we have both produced. Um, uh, new new ways to deliver textbooks. I think we'll that's just say true. that for right now, and 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 that's part of where our our thoughts about this undoubtedly come from is that we we cared enough about the issue to do those things, and we have developed thoughts as a consequence of continuing to engage in those. And you know, I think I want to make my IP point as well here. So you, okay, so, uh, but you're going to make a top line point. I'm going to make a top line point, and that's going to have an IP point. Uh, we'll, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later, but but okay. it, that's a necessary, I think, component of it. Undoubtedly. Um, I don't think anybody should ever pay for textbooks for any class for any reason. I think I want to burn the whole industry down. Uh, I, I don't think that they're not literally. Don't come after me. I'm not. I, I don't <clears throat> think anybody should burn anything. But what I'm saying is that no one that textbooks should be free. Period. <clears throat> can I? Can I? Uh, However, now let me say can, this. Let me say this, Joe. I can't query that at all yet. No, be, no, because uh, because okay. I need to say one additional thing to I think assuage. The offense that I just uh, 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 caused you. Okay. You didn't cause me any offense at all. Well, but y- you're responsible for a um, an attempted disruption in the textbook market. That's I think true. we can safe- safely say. It is not quite the same as what I'm saying because y- you're, uh, the textbooks uh, that your disruption produces, makes available, are, are not free-free, although they could be. They um, can be. And I... So, and I, um, well, let's, I'm going to have to cut this part out because I'm hemming and hawing. Don't no hem and haw. You said haw. your top line point. That's my, I, th- I think I just said I'm going to say my top line point and then I'm going to let you say yours. So I'm, I'm hawking the mic right now. You go. But the first thing I want to do is, can you just repeat your top line point and then let me ask you two follow up questions about it? Yeah. No student should ever have to pay for textbooks. Okay. Do, do you mean to say that about? All students at all grade levels. All students everywhere, all the time. Okay, so you're not you don't limit yourself to college and uh, and professional schools. Nope. Okay. Um, and you don't limit yourself to any particular topic. No, and, and let me let me just uh, that's my top line point, which is you know very brief. I'll go ahead and extend. I'll go ahead and throw out the IP point here. Okay. I would I would make it such that. Uh, it is considered a fair use anytime any copyrighted material is used in an educational setting for the purpose of educating in a classroom and where precautions are taken to prevent the you know leaking of the copyrighted material 
for non-educational purposes. So, you know, po- posting it on a course page or something like that. Right. Whole novels, whatever. Any material which is produced for a reason other than education itself, you can use free of charge in a class, fair use. Okay. That's an important caveat because um, in the first, your first point, people shouldn't be charged a fee for the educational materials. Right. Uh is is all well and good in a context where people will make available those materials without some charge. Uh, right. But in a world without the second point, the fair use point you've just made, uh, there will not be nearly as much as you might want to have available, especially in some grade levels and in some subject matter areas. Right. So the uh, the whole the whole incentive question, right? What uh, encourages people to produce such materials? And how does that, the answer to that question, what encourages them to do it? How does the answer play into whether people get charged, what they get charged, where those, how those monies are distributed, if monies are realized above and beyond the cost of production? Um, and I think... Uh, again, depending on the, the institutional setting and the grade level, I think that having people pay the cost of producing something, if it's produced on paper, for example, is actually not problematic. Myself, personally, I don't think that's problematic. Um, why, why should the students pay? The students can't shop, can they? Students can't what? The students can't shop, can they? they, they no, and, and indeed, there's, a, there's an agency problem lurking at the heart of all of these uh, matters, uh, which is that the person choosing the material uh, virtually never has to pay for it. Uh, and so they're making a choice that other people have to put shell out money for. And, that's, and we would all recognize in many contexts, that's an odd situation, yeah, right? It'd point, be odd if someone, if you walked into a restaurant and you sat down to, or, to eat a dinner that someone else had got to choose for you, but that you had to pay for. Yeah, that would be weird, right? You would say, oh my God, I don't want to eat at that that's, restaurant. That's, that's terrible. That's, that's the only kind of restaurant I eat at. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, not really. But I think at this point, we should probably bifurcate the... Um, uh, the discussion between the K twelve setting and the college and and post grad setting because I think, that's that's what we know best I think too well it's what we know best I think my top line point remains no okay. student should have to pay for uh, the educational materials okay. how you realize that goal I think is different potentially different in K twelve and maybe even right. within K twelve yeah uh, because than it public is versus private college and, yeah there's yeah. just um, and what I'm so the the particular software that I produced and the method for producing these materials that I have in mind, which we will go into, just like we'll go into uh, your um, uh, software. I mean, your uh, uh, textbook endeavor has in mind peer production, the production by scholars and the cooperation of scholars in producing educational materials. Yes. Um, so uh, that model for producing things may not carry over into K twelve exactly, and it's something that. As you say, we know we know less about, mm-hmm. um, and so it may be that that for K twelve, the public would provide the money necessary to hire people to produce materials that wouldn't ordinarily be produced by people in the course of their jobs that they already have, right? And right. So let's just bracket K twelve for a bit and just agree that I'm correct about that. Um, you're not you're not emoting to that. I'm not what? 
you're not emoting to that. You agree with me that we should bracket the K-12 point? Absolutely. And, and just agree that I'm correct about that? <laughs> well, sure. I'm happy to agree that you could very well be correct about that. Okay. Okay. So Because we're not focusing on it, and so I won't worry about that till later. Okay. And in fact, so let's just talk about law school for a second. Why don't you tell me, what is your, you reacted to my top line point, but what is your top line point? My top line point is that uh, law school textbooks and, and people who've been to law school or know someone who's been to law school, they probably heard them also referred to as case books. Uh, be, and usually that's because some of the most frequently recurring material in a law school textbook is, in fact, an excerpted edited case. So we come to call them case books. Um, my top line is that uh, case books are uh, far too expensive and delivered in uh, an archaic way. And those two facts are manifestations of a lack of competition, meaningful competition, uh, of the sort that would generate innovations in quality. So let's uh, get genuine competition on price. Uh, Let's get specific here. Okay. All right. So just to, to add meat to I the thought I was being specific, but okay. Well, no, let's just take it from the perspective of, of a law student. So people who aren't in law school or haven't been or haven't been in a while or, or, or whatever uh, can, can understand the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about. So it, it's pretty much like college, but um, uh, maybe a little bit different. So you sign up for four or five, six classes. Yep. Beginning of the term, just like in college for college classes, you get, yeah. a, you get a reading list. Or a, or a list of the uh, materials that you need to to buy for the class, including, that the professor has chosen, right, of course, including these case books, and the, and just like in college, these case books come out every few years in a new edition, and so you need to buy the newest edition to probably right. to clamp down on the used case book market. We can talk about that in a little bit. Mm. Uh, and you go to the bookstore, or these days, I imagine they are, uh, a lot of students order their books online, sure, uh, and they get these four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, depending on whether there uh, is one or there is uh, or there are more than one uh, case books for a particular class. Yep. How much are these case books, Joe? Well, interestingly, um, I, I think they're now. It's now not unusual to see a book that's two hundred or more dollars. Uh, it 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 might be, uh, you know, the median price is probably somewhere between one eighty and two hundred, and this is for a one semester book. I think the books that are perceived to be two semester books, like for the one L classes, such as contract law or tort law or what have you. Yeah, most law schools only have one semester. That's true. Most do now for most courses. Um, But I think those can be even at 220 or 225. But but I think the the median is probably somewhere between 180 and 200. So let's just take, let's just assume $1,000 per student per semester. $6,000 over the course of the law school. Yep. Education is reasonable. $1,000 per student per semester. Yep. Okay. So that's, um, so $6,000 per Student, um, and if a law school has, well, you know, there are different size law schools, from as little as seventy per class, uh, entering class to right. more like you know, kind of the Yale, Stanford size, one eighty, Georgia, I think it's around two hundred, two twenty, right, uh, and then Harvard has a has a bunch, or Georgetown, you know, yeah. Mammoth Law School, yeah, Harvard, I think has uh, ten thousand students per entering class. <laughs> I think, I think I just checked that. We'll, we'll fact check it. Yeah. Um, so, so at our law school, two thousand—I mean, two thousand, two hundred students. Let's just say two hundred. It's usually a little bit more than okay. that. Uh, two hundred students per year, 
$6,000 per student. That's uh, what is that? One, one, not, but not per year. It's six. It's it's per year. It's two thousand. Uh, yes, that's 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 correct. Um, but each year we admit two hundred students who will bear six thousand dollars in expenses over their course of their um, education. Yeah. So every year you've got six hundred students, three yeah. years worth of two hundred, exactly buying uh, two thousand dollars worth of books, mm-hmm. uh, which is a million eight, right? No, a, mil- a million, a million two. Okay. A million two, right? So it's uh, $1.2 million a year in, in textbook costs. Yes. I'm just saying that that number should be zero. <laughs> and I'm saying it should be much closer to zero than it is now. Okay. So why don't, so that's, that's how it works. I mean, that's roughly the scale that we're talking about. In and, an further, and further, I make a, the point that if there were, um, if there were more competition... Uh, it would be much closer to zero. Now, what do, what do you... Oh, I'll, okay, so what do you mean by that? What I mean is that if people... If, if more people were trying alternative ways of creating and delivering these educational materials, one of the ways they would decide to compete with one another is on price. Uh, but, see, so, people would say there are... Multi, I mean, I, when I'm choosing a textbook, there are a whole bunch I can choose. There, from. there are three um, significant law school casebook publishers: okay. Walters Kluwer, which is under the name Aspen, um, uh, LexisNexis, uh, Thompson West, and I think a fourth, much smaller publisher is California Academic Press. Uh, but yeah, so there are. But but you, to get the kind of. Co- I mean, think about other markets and, and competition in those markets. Think about the number of grocery stores or the number of... Or cable companies. Or the, <laughs> is that, don't is that don't think of the number of... Right. Don't think of the number of okay. cable companies. Um, you know, think of all the different brands of coffee or think of the different brands of, um, you know, anything that you buy on a regular basis. Uh, there are lots of producers competing against each other on all sorts of quality parameters and price parameters um and so you can simply say quality adjusted price and when you get lots and lots of competitors you get much more vigorous competition highly concentrate what what a person would call a highly concentrated market where there are fewer competitors one of the byproducts of that kind of concentration is firms can see even without entering into any kind of improper agreement with each other firms can see Okay, they're keeping their price high. If I keep mine high, they'll see that I'm keeping mine high just like they're keeping theirs high, and we don't need to compete against each other too hard on price. Right. And so through a, a what antitrust people would call conscious parallelism, which and is you not are unlawful. An, you are an antitrust person. Okay. You, I mean, you teach it, just to be clear to the listeners. I mean, there's some... And, and you worked in the antitrust division. I, that is also at the, true. At the Justice Department. That is also true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so th- through conscious parallelism, which is not unlawful, y- because there are so few competitors, you can wind up with a much less vigorous form of competition and therefore much less of the kinds of benefits we get from more vigorous competition. Yeah, the general point is that with perfect competition, with a bunch of competitors in the marketplace, that the goods being produced can't really be pr- priced at much more, if any more, than the cost of producing those goods. 
Correct. Because if you try to charge more than the cost of production... People will just turn to someone else. People will come in and, and charge just a little bit less. Right. Um, and, and of course, they won't charge less than it costs to make them. Right. But they won't be able to charge much more than it costs to make them. Right. So price will get competed down to marginal cost. Yes. And the innovations may be in production costs at that point. That's true, because if you... If you develop a cheaper way to produce something relative to your competitors, you will be able to charge what they charge, but you'll have a fatter margin. So there's an incentive for you to develop cheaper production costs. So you can either undercut them very slightly, steal a bunch of share. You could price the same with a fatter margin. So yeah, there's all kinds of incentives to innovate, even on internal production costs. Yes. So, and I guess it also depends on the potential in the market to produce something which is obviously way better. Because if it's way better, maybe at least for a little while, you can charge above market rates. Absolutely. Right? because Sure, because uh, p- what people are always paying for is quality-adjusted price. Right. So it's you know, am I willing to part with what they're asking me to pay for it based on what my other choices are? And when something is dramatically better than everything else in its category, some people will say, oh, it's worth the additional dollars they're asking for because that's so far superior. They're effectively creating a new category of goods for which the others are now suddenly viewed as kind of sucky substitutes. So we don't have that. We have a market with relatively few publishers, and we're talking just about law now, Right. Um, uh, relatively few books. publishers, yep. um, each of whom produces, uh, you know, not just one, but a few case books in each subject area. That's true. Um, so there are, a, in a, there is an apparent kind of abundance of choices. Uh, I would say within each field, there, there are maybe two leading case books, maybe three yeah. that people tend to choose. So there's usually not just one. Um, and in a way, you could say, so So a person might say that we've been misdescribing by focusing on the publishers rather than the titles, uh, that, that what really competes in this marketplace is a particular title for a casebook in you know, copyright law or trademark law or land use planning or property law or antitrust law or corporate law, or, so that we, we haven't been comparing the right apples to apples. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's in a market where the publishers don't really have to compete, um, but where they each carry multiple titles, essentially that's a mechanism for the publishers to screw the authors, <laughs> right? Because they can they can pay the authors less because they have substitutes. Right. Uh, okay, so not only do we have relatively few publishers, but the who are the customers in this market? Well, the customers are in one sense, professors, uh, because professors are the ones who choose which books to use. But, in, but the paying customers are the students. Are who, they, though? Well, who do you think the customers are? The professors. Because the pre- professors they, make the, the buying choosing choices. choosing customer, right. but they're not the paying customer. But They're the gateway customer. If they don't choose it, it doesn't get bought. But would you say if a student has, uh, if, if, if a student has an arrangement with his or her parents to pay for the costs of books and uh, and they buy books and you know maybe they pay their own money and get reimbursed or whatever that the real customer is the the parent who pays it's surely still this it's the person who chooses right it's the person who can who who is making who has an effect in the market yeah but but um I and under that definition the students aren't 
customers at all. No, fair enough. But but the okay. So so what you lose though, and what when you wouldn't want to lose is the is the fact that the person choosing is not the same as the person paying. That's right. And That's- usually, what we use the word customer to denote is who's paying. So this is one of those odd instances where there's a separation between choice and payment. Right. Uh, mostly, you go to the grocery store again, it's or the restaurant. You you get to choose and you pay. Right. And so the word customer, if it's meant to indicate choosing, that's usually along with paying too. Right. I'm making a, an extremely trivial point. Yes. I yes. I, I mean, specialize. It's more of a semantic thing, right? I mean, but if we're trying to analyze how this market works. Right, and so people need to understand that that their first impulse might be to say, "Oh, the student's the customer," but but really, it's the professor who chooses the book. Yeah, it's a little bit like, although you know, different from the way that uh, ordinary TV always worked, right? Where the uh, the broadcaster makes shows um, and trying to entice you and you and me to to watch these shows and and other and others too presumably right if, if they were only trying to entice you and me to watch these shows man they'd be some great shows joe <laughs> i agree um i agree uh sadly that's not the world in which we live right. um but the customers of course are the people buying the advertisers. The customers are the advertisers right and the products are the people viewing right okay so it's it and that creates for some weird markets i mean it, it, it's kind of weird because you know what the t what the broadcaster is trying to do is to figure out like what people want but they're also trying to find the right kind of people the kind of people who'll be attractive to advertisers and so it's uh the market for um tv shows is is is, has been a strange one uh in the world where where advertising uh, pays pays the way so so too your kind of naive interpretation of the textbook market i think is misleading at an economic level because yes the students are paying but they aren't really the customers in any important sense because they don't have any they don't exercise choice with some caveats and those caveats may be important, but they don't exercise the choices which determine what succeeds and what fails in the market. Professors do that because the professors assign the books and then therefore they determine who gets paid and how much again with a caveat. The caveat is that the students may uh, be pushed to the point where they, um, copy you know they get free textbooks by basically copying them or right. going to illegal sites or well, they may participate in the used market or the new market and the professor has only limited choice over how much they can um uh the extent to which they can go into the used market or the you know there may be depending on the law school the, the law library at that school might maintain a reference copy that the, that the student could check out and read in the library from the reserve desk or what have you so i mean there are as you say there are there are things students can do to try to substitute. Right. But the, I think, so setting that to one side, and it may be an important, you know, aspect of describing this market. uh, The, the most important choice in the market is uh, made by professors who choose case books for their classes. And they are not the ones who, maybe they're, you know, it's a weird thing because maybe they do consume those case books in a meaningful way. I mean, they decide, you know, if you think that the professor's interests are aligned with student learning, then, you know, maybe it makes sense that they are, they are the customers. Um, But they are not, the problem is they are not exactly price sensitive, right? They're not paying the cost. Yeah. And I I don't think it would make any sense. I, I, maybe I could be persuaded otherwise. I'm not, I just don't know, but it, this sounds like it, 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 it's, it's so strange to me to contemplate, you know, how could the students choose the 
book that's going to be used in the course. That's that's not possible. So a professor who's going to teach a course has to make choices about the content of what's taught in that course. Right. So it's a little bit like doctors and prescription drugs, right? Yeah, the patient isn't going to be in any position to be able to say, well, no, I think the thing that would better treat my heart disease problem or my hypertension problem is this other thing. It's like, well, you're, did you go to med school or did I go to med school, <laughs> right. says the prescribing physician. I'm trying to prescribe you the thing that I know to be the best thing. And so what happens in that market? Well, and you've got the further complication that it, so there the customer, I suppose, is, you know, is it the doctor? Is it the insurance company? I mean, because you've, the, now you've got three layers of. But you have stuff. drug reps. Well, yeah, and they're the ones flacking the ver- the drugs to the docs, and we don't know what kind of kickbacks or other. Yeah, they're bringing in lunches. Perk arrangements doing, yeah, are made. All kinds right. of perks, so there's, yeah. yeah, there's all sorts of things going on there uh, that, that one has a sense of maybe influencing uh, prescription practices you know, above the and beyond one thing, efficacy. Spe- speaking of that, the one thing that could convince me to start assigning, because um, I've not assigned a, uh, a textbook that costs any money for at least six years now. Um, but the one thing that could pull me back into that perks, Mm. maybe if the, you know, I don't know if any textbook moguls are listening to this. Yeah. But if they are, Christian is ripe for the picking. Oh yeah. Yeah. Take me out to lunch. Pay for my, pay for my uh, tab at two story. Nice. The coffee shop. Oh yeah. Um, you know, buy me some coffee. I don't know. Maybe that would bring me back. No, no, you wouldn't. It wouldn't. Of course I jest. (laughs) Uh, but that is, it's interesting. You don't see that though, do you? You don't really see those kinds of kickbacks in the, maybe I'm just not the right kind of person. Maybe other people are seeing these kickbacks. Yeah. That's not know. happening. I've never heard about that. I have you? So. No. Okay. So we don't have the worst aspects of the, uh, we don't have the worst aspects occurring, I guess, I'm assuming right. of markets in which the person who is making the choices for other people's money doesn't bear any of the costs of that choice. Right, because the perks would be a very valuable tool, right? Because we yes. do get we do get textbook reps coming by the law school. We do. A lot. What, what that suggests is that there. Well, one thing it suggests it might suggest other things, but one thing it suggests is there's not nearly as much money to be made in law school casebooks as there is in pharmaceuticals. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> because all that all that offering of perks is being underwritten by the prices being paid. Yeah, so, no, this is, in terms of social problems, if we're going to change the world, I'm not sure that we would start here. Yeah, we're, we're, but, yeah. I might start here because this may be (laughs) the only way that we know. It's it's, what we know and what we can do. And it's like, you know, so the $1.2 million a year at a law school like ours, of our size, maybe we're an average size law school. How many law schools are there, Joe? 200? About 200. 200. So, you know, what is that? 240 million a year? Yeah. Yeah, so over over five years, we're talking about a, a, a billion bucks. Yep, a bill, one point two billion. Wow. Yeah. When you say it like that, it's over it sounds over a fifty more years, twelve billion dollars. Okay, right. One point two billion five. Yeah, I stopped doing the math, but yeah. I, I'm I'm trying. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I, I think twelve billion bucks over the course of maybe my career. So I, I would use, like to save America $12 billion. Cool. Now, one, uh, so one worry a person might have uh, is that uh, when, they're, when they're comparing your top line to uh, what they see, uh, 
in, in terms of current practice, they might think, well, you know, if, if no one has to pay for a, a textbook in law schools, um, no one will make them. Right. Uh, and here's where I want to get into specifics. My specific thing that I made to help with this problem, and then your specific thing that you made to help with this problem. Okay. I think specifics will help this discussion because you're, you're getting at the incentive problem. So if, if we yeah, meet my the, top line, no one's going to make these things, right? And, and, the, and the one observation I think to begin with is the important notion, which goes back to your bracketing of the K through 12, is when it comes to college professors and law school professors and, and similarly situated folk, there is a big job-related incentive we have to produce such materials as part of our professional writing career uh, for which we're already compensated. Right. So the, we actually are getting compensated for the writing activities, some of which include, for some people, the preparation of things like casebooks. Um, and, and so they are getting it. So the answer to the question, well, no one will make it if they don't get paid, agreed, they do get paid. Yes. And, that's, and so they don't need to be paid out of revenue f generated by the book. That was part of the assumption of my project, which is that... Um, that people in our profession, legal academia, maybe beyond legal academia to other uh, branches, um, are, are kind of already compensated to teach. And part of teaching, as we know, includes preparing at least some of our own materials, choosing materials, mixing in, adding, you know, in our, you know, even people who, who assign uh, these, uh, you know, uh, four-pay casebooks uh, will usually add in a recent case, maybe even some of their own writing little snippets uh, sure. to download. So this happens a lot. People already produce small amounts of materials to add in uh, to their classes. Yep. And that's just seen as maybe good teaching, what we already get paid for. And it was a fundamental premise of, of my project, right? Which is that lots of people already produce, may enjoy it, may see it as part of their job. I want people to see it as kind of part of their job to right. produce little bits of things, especially in their area of strength, right? Yes, um, what is your project called? Do you feel like telling people what it's called? Yeah, Hydrotext. Cool. Hydrotext. And, you know, it was... It was back How's that spelled? H-Y-D-R-A-T-E-X-T. Cool. Uh, we'll, we'll put, link it up in the show notes along with uh, along with your project, which we'll get to in a second. Which okay. is, like, mine is more of an, um, I think, uh, an idea that I put into very, you know, it's a very practical idea in the sense that it, it, there's actually a website. It works. Yeah. It's how I've made all my own materials. Absolutely. Um, and I've and made materials others. using your site as well. Right. Um, but it, it wasn't necessarily made to be the thing which did what I think is eventually going to happen. I mean, it, you know, part of my goal was to kind of set a bar, right, that I think this is obviously how things are going to go, the way that I'm about to describe. And I want whatever ends up being the way that this works to be at least as good as what I did. Right. It, well, you know, I didn't necessarily think that my thing was going to take over the world, but it seems to me so obvious that this is how everything is going to work. And, uh, so should I describe the yeah. basic problem? Yes. And then I'd like to hear your view on whether you think the H2O project, uh, at Harvard is, uh, is hitting a benchmark that you've set. You know, I've not used it. Okay. You know, I've not used it. So have you used it? Um, I, no, uh, not to create a set of materials for a course. I explored it a bit. And yeah, so it, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. And, and, and we will do a follow-up to this at some point and, okay. and maybe maybe get one of those people on. That'd be great to, to have more. one of them on. Yeah. Um, 
but but the 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 idea was this, and I this back in two thousand seven, I think, is when I first started coding this, and I think I created it all in two thousand seven or two thousand eight. I forget which summer it was that I. And two thousand eight is when my project started too. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia, Joe. <laughs> Let's start with Wikipedia. Okay. No one in this world uh, would probably have the time or inclination to produce Wikipedia all on their own, right? Right. Especially if it was free. Today, the size of it, you couldn't possibly do it, right? True. So Wikipedia represents a a use of the network to allow um, many, many different people to collaborate to produce one, you know, shining version of a thing, an encyclopedia in that case, right? Yeah. So you get one, uh, you, you have one project, one goal, right? And what the network allows you to do is is to chop up the achievement of that goal into lots of small pieces that individuals can work on. And not only can work on, but want to work on. Yeah. And want to work on because it meets some other need of theirs or desire of theirs or incentive of theirs. So it's it's not merely that they can, it's that they do. It's like they want to and they do. Yeah. So, you get, so, so you're harnessing that. It's a many-to-one use in the network is the way I thought of it. It's many different people cooperating to produce one great version. Right. And you're right. The, all the incentives are there. The feedback are there. Although, you know, it's you look kind of dive into the statistics of who works on Wikipedia, and it's kind of interesting. So I don't want to oversell right. the extent to which it, you know, kind of lots and lots of people cooperate. But it is it does at least uh, allow the kind of chopping up of one huge task into small pieces. And yes. people want to work on it, they do work on it, and it produces a, a canonical version. So it seemed to me in the problem of, of case Have books, you, textbook, just before yeah, you talk about, So the one, one discussion, although he has his critics, so it's not the only discussion one could, one could refer to, but there's a, I don't know if you've ever looked at Yohai Benkler's Wealth of Networks. Yeah, I've seen, looked at parts of it. I've um, but it. that's, we should probably put that in the show notes as a, that's one place a person could go um, to, uh, if they wanted to explore further this notion of, of peer production and Wikipedia specifically as an example. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Well, I want to contrast that though with the problem in textbooks, okay. right? Cause that's the, um, uh, it, it, because one, one possible uh, innovation in textbook production that people had thought about was to produce textbooks using Wikipedia's, uh, framework, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the open, what do they call them? Wiki texts or wiki books or I okay. forget. Uh, and the same kind of idea. Well, let's just set up an empty wiki and allow people to kind of, you know, right. add into the articles and then we'll kind of order the articles into a textbook format. And this will produce like great textbooks. So if we want to produce an algebra three textbook, uh, we say that's what we're doing and people join in and they edit and we get it all into one official version. So again, it's many different people cooperating through the network to produce this shining, you know, official version of something. But it seemed to me that in, in education, we have a slightly different problem because what I would often do as a professor, even when I used other people's case books was to, you know, I, I would take a case book that I was more or less happy with. I would supplement it with a few other things. We wouldn't do the whole case book. In fact, casebook authors themselves don't teach their own case books from page one to of course 800 not. often. Oftentimes they do not. They will do this chapter first, that chapter next. Right. The students actually don't like this, uh, in my experience. They would rather not um, kind of do a little bit here, a little bit there. It makes it feel a little bit less organized. You have to do a lot of work to show that there's a plan. Yeah. Right? So the syllabus has to be really laid out clearly. In, in my experience, I usually try to work... Uh, 
to, to get past the idea that this is a haphazard presentation of the materials. Right. Right. Um, but each professor has a, you know, is, is trying to conceptualize the best way to convey the information and the set of skills and the, you know, the art, the science of whatever is in their bailiwick, whatever their class is supposed to be about. You're trying to transmit that to the students and professors usually have distinctive ways of wanting to do that. Right. Um, and so, you know, inevitably professors in fact are taking materials out there and producing many different versions. Yeah. Right. And, uh, um, you know, each professor is slightly different. It's just that the case book, the paid case book often forms the vast bulk of the materials. Yeah. It's like a core, the core. And then there are other ones around it. And then within that core, you're kind of manipulating the table of contents. Right. So my idea was this, that, um, everybody's already producing little bits of material. Usually that's just sent to their students and that's it. It doesn't escape the walls of the classroom. Um, but I thought to myself that, that it's not unreasonable to think <clears throat> that, for example, like a, take a chemistry, take a Nobel laureate in chemistry. I think it's unreasonable to think that all such people or that most such people, or even, even you know, a significant number of such people are going to take the time to produce a biology, uh, chemistry 101 textbook. Right. Right. I mean, it's just, it's a massive undertaking. They got lots of stuff to do. Yes. It's probably not unreasonable to think that they might produce a short, you know, summary of like their own work or some aspect of basic chemistry that touches on their work. And they might be able to produce something really great. Not all of them, right? Some, some aren't interested in even doing that. So, right. Um, in other words, if the unit of production is a lot smaller, a lot more people will engage in producing that unit and will have a lot will have a lot more better materials, right? Because uh, right now, if you think the unit of production is an entire textbook, the number of people who are going to embark on producing an entire textbook is probably going to be smaller than the number of people who produce short things to add in to textbooks in their own classes, right? Yeah. So you're, sort of, you're lowering a barrier on the thought that more people will jump in. Right. With but a lower barrier. What the network can do is harness all of that production of small units. And so... The way I conceived of the problem is instead of a many-to-one, like Wikipedia problem, right? And then Wikipedia used the network to solve that problem. We have a many-to-many problem. In other words, we have uh, what we want to do is enable many people to cooperate to produce many different versions of the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So if we take like, I don't know, torts, right? The law of torts. And we want to produce torts casebooks. Everyone who teaches that may want a slightly different casebook. But those, and maybe even radically different, but those different case books will share a lot of the same materials. Yes. Right? Um, and in fact, anyone who teaches that is always going to be on the lookout for better materials. Sure. And may be surprised by the quality of materials in one area or another. Right. May even want to share large segments of a case book that someone else uses, but then other parts too. So, And, if you, and you can even think of that towards teacher... As, you know, teaching it in year one versus teaching it in year two, their view might change between year one and two about the use of a particular exactly. source. So even the very same person year to year has different preferences. That's right. Um, so there's when you say many, it's really many, many. Many, yeah. Many because it's, <laughs> there are it's many people. Many professors and many years. Because each of them is more than one. Right. Producing different things and wanting different things, right? Yeah. So what is needed is a different platform than the Wikipedia platform. It's a platform which allows 
many people to come together, share materials, use those materials to produce many different versions of a thing. Right. Okay. So the, the, uh, uh, the web software that I created, um, lets people build textbooks. Like you build a playlist in iTunes or Spotify or something. Basically you have a library of materials and you drag them in order to produce a playlist. And, and what I, and I do think, I think the H2O uh, thing at Harvard, they invoke the same playlist metaphor. Yeah. Um, and it's such a handy metaphor. It's a pervasive idea. And it's a hierarchical, a textbook essentially is a hierarchical playlist, you know, because it's not just, you know, a playlist in iTunes is one through 20 or a playlist in Spotify. So, you know, you just right. play songs. A, a, a textbook will have some additional structure to it. Chapter one, section A, section right. B. So you need to be able right. to produce a table of contents and under each heading, you need a list of materials. Yes. And that is, that describes a textbook. Yep. Well, once you conceive of it that way, then, you know, here's what the software does. It allows you to do that by, you can upload little snippets of materials, cases in our, for, in legal academia, uh, descriptions of things. You can upload PDFs. You can write in Markdown, which we described in a, in a prior show. Uh, you can upload Word documents. You upload all these different types. In fact, it even allows you to upload movies and, and, and images and sound. Um, and then you build a table of contents. Under each heading, you throw in uh, what I call articles, but they're the materials, and you hit a button, and out comes a PDF, an EPUB, an ebook, kind of thing that you could read in in, in iBooks or something like that, uh, and uh, in addition, a web page, right? So you can actually just, in a web browser, read the casebook. Sure. Uh, so all these different versions of the casebook come out. All right, now, that's you know how an individual would produce something, and it's how I've done a lot of my classes. It's super easy and it, and it comes out looking beautiful because it, it uses does. LaTeX and all of that, right? Yep. And it makes nice PDFs. Um, and as I say, I've used it um, and uh, and it, you're, I agree with everything you've said. To take advantage of the, advantage of the, the network, output, though, you need a lot of people in each subject. You need more than one person in each subject area producing stuff. Yes. Because what the software allows you to do is to look at other people's casebooks or other people's textbooks and uh, you can't change their textbook. That's the Wikipedia model, right? You all work on one version. Right. Instead, everybody owns their own textbook, right? In the sense that no one else can change it. But you can copy. So if you like someone else's textbook, you can just copy the whole thing. And then you can, uh, and now you own a copy of that textbook on the website. And you can go in and you can reorder the chapters. You can change the contents of individual chapters. Or you whatever. could add some things. You could take away some things. Mm-hmm. And you can, you could even, um, bookmark and copy just one chapter of someone else's casebook and then just put it into your own in any order. So, And then once your book is there, then other people could similarly do that with yours as well. That's right. So you're building a resource, right? Um, which is these many-to-many, many right. people creating things that many people use and adapt. Right. And th- so the key for doing that is to um, think of the, uh, is, is, to, is to use this kind of network platform right? To have a, a large library of materials, each of which is tagged with different subject areas, uh, to allow hierarch- building of hierarchical playlists, right? And, but to create ownership rights in each created thing to an individual. That's how you achieve the many-to-many na- you know, uh, network nature that's needed to solve this problem. Uh, so anyway, I created this and it works, I think, uh, pretty well. And, and um, I've had to kind of continually chase changing standards because one of the nice things about it is that uh you can just type in a case and it, it will drag it, it will pull it from google scholar and uh 
change a lot of the formatting and get it all so it looks nice on in a PDF. Right. Um, and Google keeps kind of changing things and locking me out. And so I had to, right now you have to go and you have to copy the source from the web page, but you can just paste in that source into a dialog box. And it, it used to be, you could just, it just pulled it automatically using a yeah. thing on the thing. So that's, it's, that's how I recall it. Yeah. It, and they've disabled it. So it's kind of a mess. You kind of, kind of have to keep it up. And I haven't really been into it for the past uh, couple years. It's still, it's still how I produce my textbooks. Um, but it hasn't really caught fire. You know, I wouldn't say it's a failure because it was, uh, you know, it's what I've been using. And if you think about how much money I've saved the students, I think it was worth my time uh, to make it. Um, I also learned, uh, allowed me to learn Rails programming, Ruby on Rails and uh, object-oriented programming, which I hadn't really done before. Um, So that was, that was fun. Um, And I think it, you know, it's the right model. And it sounds like H2O at Harvard is... uh, is using the same model. It's a much more recent thing. I think it's uh, because I knew some of the people at the Berkman Center yeah. back in when I was first getting started with Hydrotext, and they were uh, embark. Yeah, I think they were working on something else. So, uh, what's your experience, Joe? And you've you've used my stuff, and and you've poked around H two O. Yeah, and conceptually, I do see some real similarities. I think. Uh, do you do? You, would you like me to talk about my thing now, or? whatever you want. If you want to throw it all out on the table and then we can talk about all of it, or if you want to tell me about H2O since it relates most directly to what I just well, talked I about. I haven't, ex- I haven't explored it enough. To, as I say, I didn't use it to generate a book to use in a course. Okay. And I think until you've done that, you don't you really don't know. know. You don't know. The, yeah. the sort of the real ebb and flow on a day-to-day basis of how a thing operates. And I think the purpose of this show when we talked about talking about this topic was just to kind of get out on the table that there are problems with the uh, with learning materials right now, we're still tied to this old book model. Yes, uh, and we should talk more about the ways that the publishers are trying to survive in a kind of networked age. Uh, they're trying to do some things which replicate some of what I was just talking about right. by allowing you to like reorder chapters within the walled garden that is their own set of textbooks. Right. Um, uh, but I wanted to get out on the table this problem of learning materials. What I've done, which I think is a will ultimately be the solution, which will be the way things work, right? Which is basically like if you think an iTunes store mm-hmm. of education materials that are free and open because you can't charge anything for them because we're all producing them as part of our jobs. And then people building all these playlists and copying each other's playlists. I think it's once you see the possibilities of that, it's so obvious everything will work that way eventually, right? But who knows how long it's going to take uh, to get there. At least it is to me. Now, you may disagree. <laughs> But that seems to be what H2O is doing. Yes. And now I do have – so there are, there are additional issues that we haven't talked about yet that, that suggest a diff, additional uh, uh, different responses. Um, but before I mention some of those things – so there, there are other projects too, like E. Langdell. This is the Cali-based project uh, for casebooks. I know you've participated in that. Yeah, I should disclose that I have a deal with I – so, I, I sold my textbooks to them and licensed the Hydrotech software. To them. Oh, okay. Um, they ended up not doing anything with Hydrotech software. I don't know what all their internal um, decision making was. We haven't really communicated about that, but uh, they but have. But they're own certainly platform. trying to. Cali in this E Langdell project is certainly right. trying to develop alternative ways of delivering books uh, with paper based alternatives, but also e book alternatives. Right. Uh, and that's sort of an angle. That's part of the story for me is. Um, Simply the problem of the traditional casebook publishers delivering everything in a paper-based and only a paper-based way that um, and and all of the sort of shipping and 
everything that goes into creating and storing and all that stuff and uh and you know representatives visiting different schools and uh, there's just this huge traditional casebook publishing infrastructure uh, that exists around this and and in 2008 uh when this was before the iPad existed right but you know the Kindle was out and the larger format Kindle I think had come out and so the the notion of also the iPhone was out and the rumor mill was hyperactive with true there was of the the ta- everybody knew the tablet was coming. Ab- right yeah. tablet rumors are out there was certainly PDF as a way to uh, deliver a document uh, in a format that you knew the recipient would see what you wanted them to see on the page uh, was already prevalent, and people could certainly use that on a laptop as a student, get a PDF from an instructor or from some source, and use it as your book uh, for a course. Uh, the PDF w- had been around for years, and, and, that, and so that was sort of available, Adobe Reader, basically. Uh, so... If you thought about casebooks, you know, what if you delivered them only in e-format, right? What if you delivered them only as uh, e-books, not as paper-based books? Um, And further, if you thought about, in some ways, continuing with a very traditional sense of the model of production, which is... Um, the the many to many process that you described pre hydrotext right? You there is a core that is the book produced by one or more persons who are named on the book, right? And then you adapt it in your own personalized way in the context of your course, right? Right. Um, the, if one thing that that does is it not only allows for that adaptation that happens by the individual who adopts the book, but when you, when you have a book that's delivered in this way with the authors named on the front of the book, you're also keeping intact the reputational dynamic that may have drawn them to produce it. Right. Right. So as, as, as I've said, we know that professors are compensated to write many different sorts of things already. Yeah. So the returns that you get from writing a casebook could be if there's revenue generated by the book. But frankly, the royalties paid to casebook authors by traditional casebook publishers are not particular. That's these just not money you could live on on an annual salary. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if with with a very small number of possible exceptions, there are some casebooks that have been so popular for so many years they probably actually have generated a, a substantial amount of income for their authors. Yeah. But but those are the exception, not the rule. Right. So the rule is the royalty doesn't generate very much, and I think for a lot of professors the royalty is neither here nor there. But they do. And and I know it's true of me. I've had this thought myself personally, so I can report it from that perspective. Um, I actually, it actually does matter to me that the people who are encountering uh, the IP survey book that my co-author and I have written, as an example, right? The people who are encountering it encounter it as a book that I helped to co-produce. So reputationally, there is it is still a book they can associate with me. They don't know me. But it's the book that Joe Miller and Lydia Lauren wrote together. And, that, and I like that. I, I'm, that matters to me. Well, because you wrote the whole thing. 
Correct. We absolutely. It's and in that sense, it is very traditional, right? Right. Um, that it's the traditional model of a, a one or two or three people getting together to produce the thing and deliver the thing. Right. And and I think the reason the, the reason that I'm a little bit less um, uh, my prediction about the ultimate fate of all this and the the hydrotext approach. Um, really taking off is the the many people collaborating to produce for many users and many adaptations that that actually it it might not attract everybody as a producer right to know that people could be using virtually the entirety of the book you produced without any attribution to you of having been the producer of it yeah I have things built in that that allow. For some of that, I mean, I have like a license field, and so there was even the potential to charge money for for parts of the book if you wanted to. I don't. Right. I, I so I think the it, attribution, but, but, the eco, the attribution, yeah. the role of the attribution f- uh, factor in this ecosystem of production and consumption, I think, is an important thing to think about. Our thought is to keep it intact. Well, here's, in the in the traditional. I want to separate two two quick things here because I, I one is that. Um, the role of of ego and 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 um, reputation in encouraging us in in the special academic role to do stuff, I think, is is an important and interesting point that uh, we should we could talk more broadly about at some point. Yeah. But what I really like about your project, and I want you to get to say what it is, so and we'll have a link to it in the show notes as well, um, is that you what you saw in two thousand and eight were some of the big problems with the casebook market yes and a way to enter that market with immediate impact right where i think my project was more about reconceiving the way these things are made yes and producing a it was very important to me to produce software that worked and that could be used immediately and would be immediately better which you did which i, I think i did i mean i certainly I know you like did. it and 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 other people could use it um because it's not my full-time job and I haven't worked, you know, I haven't tried to really commercialize it. But, um, uh, but I think in a way your, your project, which I want you to describe, you know, the model and everything else uh, is, is at the same time less and more ambitious, right? It's less ambitious in terms of reconceptualizing the way we produce materials, yep. but more ambitious in terms of actually, you know, pragmatically disrupting the market directly, right? Right now. Right. Um, I think that's fair. And yeah. uh, so, why don't you tell us exactly what your project, what's it called, and, and well, it's called, all that? It's called uh, the publishing company is called Semaphore Press. Uh, semaphore like signal flag, right? Uh, which is spelled S E M A P H O R E. Semaphore Press, um, and we publish, you know, a number of titles uh, of law school casebooks. The there are the authors. Like a traditional case book, the content of the books is very traditional cases, problems, materials, that sort of thing. Uh, it's delivered only as an ebook, so it's a PDF. Right. And in fact, only PDFs. We don't have alternative ebook formats mm-hmm. because this, again, it's in this sense, it's hyper traditional, right? We, the book is presented to you with as a particular visual experience. Right. And with uh, other EPUB formats, you have less control over that. So we want more control over it, and so we provide it as, as a PDF, which people read on all sorts of different readers, including iPads, etc. They can print things, uh, which gets into 
they can order a printed copy too, can't they? they uh, it depends on which title and and for, so so for uh, for, for some of our titles, we've we've got connect. You you can use Lulu Press, which is a way to get a hard copy that's bound. Yeah, um, Lulu Press has page limitation. Okay issues built in so yeah. depending on the length of the case book it might not be amenable to that but our- can, can i stop you right there because i have a similar thing with my uh with my case books because uh, some students want printed copies and if it's my land use or property class although n- not so much anymore because i use different property uh, a different version of my property book than what appears on elangdell's mm. uh Callie's thing mm-hmm. but if you but anybody who uses those can order through lulu the printed bound copy for those books uh what I do in my classes, though, uh, for students who want printed copies, and it seems to, I, for a while, it seemed like it was decreasing the numbers who wanted printed copies because more people had tablets, and it was right. Uh, but then now that it seems like there were more, so it, it seems to vary from year to year. Yeah. I mean, I would not want a printed copy. I think if part I were of student, what's driving but, it too is that exam taking software has gotten so popular, yeah. and it locks you out of the yeah. rest of the software on your one laptop. One thing I've done, yeah, one thing I've done is to eliminate that. So my, I allow my students not to use the exam taking software; they can just use Word. Or okay. whatever, uh, because that is a problem. Like, yeah. if you can't reach anything, or they, I allow them to use a tablet or whatever. Right. Um, uh, in addition, but what I've done is uh, is uh, take uh, gotten the students to solve what I call the collective action problem of the textbook, right? Which is to uh, sign up if they want a printed copy, usually. And if I have enough, uh, I can go to like it used to be Kinkos. I still call it Kinkos. <laughs> it's not FedEx. It's Kinkos. Right. Uh, and say I want this many copies of this 700 page book. How much? And it usually usually can get it down for seven or eight hundred pages to about twelve dollars, thirteen dollars. If you have more than one, if you want to order more than one copy, if you order, yeah, I think it had over a certain threshold. Yeah. But usually, I need a bunch of students to sign up, and yeah. they agree, and then I haven't know. done that. I should give that a try. What what? So what? Our approach is, and again, this distinguishes us from. Partly, it's our views as IP professors and some preferences we have as in terms of our preference is being quite different from traditional publishers. So, so one, we deliver it as a PDF, but there's no so-called DRM or digital rights management. Right. So a lot of the traditional textbook publishers, when they provide, when, when they finally move into the ebook market, they encumber their ebook products with a, basically they sell them in a way that's broken on purpose. So the thing either only lasts for six months or, you, you mean can't, like Mission Impossible style? Right, exactly. Or you can't only you don't look like Tom Cruise. Um, you can't print Speak for things. Yourself, Joe. But hmm, you can't print <laughs> things like more than one page a day oh, or gosh. something like that. You can't. You know. So there's all these weird. So it goes beyond just not being able to email it to a friend. <laughs> Right. right. I mean, that's the basic thing, right? But it's, yeah, but it's, I mean, so it's sold in this very broken way in terms right. of thinking. If you think, if your first priority is, how do I deliver to a student a thing that is most useful for them to have as a tool for learning? Okay. If that's the question right. you start with, you're not going to think of 10 ways to break it. Before you, before they ever get their hands on it. Right? That's because you have. That's because these textbook companies, I think, have a dual conception of the students. One, you want them to get. The, you think of them as people who want really to dig in your materials and get the most possible out of those materials, and at the same time, devious people who will try to cheat them and uh, buy one copy and distribute it to a hundred others. Yeah, and it's difficult. You, it is difficult, uh, and I don't. I don't fault them for for having ideas about the world they live in because we made a world anew. We started fresh, so we didn't have to live in the world they have to live in with all kinds of legacy and incumbent 
type type stuff. Right. Um, but yeah, it's. I think it is tough to live in a world where you're basically you look at every customer as an enemy. Now you guys though are the radio head of textbook companies. Yeah. So right? so our thought was in terms of pricing. So our thought was again, if your first priority is what students need most is they need to have the learning tool. Uh, and so what we say is, look, the suggested price of the book is thirty bucks, which is about a buck a day. So that's our thing from iTunes. A buck per class day? Uh, yeah. If you think about, you know, how many class sessions are there in a semester? And some at some schools, it's two meetings a week. At some schools, it's three meetings a week. But, but roughly, just very roughly speaking, a dollar a class session would be 30 bucks. Right. On average, across all the different law schools and all the different It's places. interesting, though, because for actual law students, the question might be, how much would you pay not to have to attend this class session? <laughs> Right, but anyway, thirty dollars we thought was a was a number that was totally reasonable in terms of you know a dollar per session for for the infrastructure the the basic tool of, of what you need for that class session, so that's thirty dollars for the book, and further, we say, look, we think it's worth thirty bucks. The suggested price is thirty bucks, but you need to make a decision about what you want to pay, so you can pay thirty. Pay more than thirty. Pay less than thirty, including all the way down to zero. If you don't want to pay for it, don't pay for it. That's your choice, which you need to make as a responsible individual. We think thirty is fair, so we ask you for thirty, but you decide what to pay. And um, indeed, you can get a copy of the book. It's the same copy, the same PDF with no digital rights management brokenness encumbrance BS. Right? You can get it for zero dollars. Yeah, on our website. That is one of the things available to you. What do most people do? Well, about, you know, I would say very roughly speaking, about four out of five students pay something rather than zero. Okay. And of those who pay about, roughly speaking, about four out of five of them pay the $30 we ask. How many people pay $60? Every once in a while, you will get someone who pays more than 30 Really? Do they, do they pay that up front or do they tend yes. to come back and pay it later? No, it tends to be up front. Hmm. Uh, and, it's, and it's pretty rare. But it has happened. Um, and there are students who, some pay five, some pay ten. But again, over the run of, of books, because we sell more than one title, over the run of books, over the run of years, very roughly speaking, it seems to be four out of five and four out of five. So, you know, that to me is a totally reasonable, it's like, in a way, it's, we're, we're saying, be an educator first, and as an educator right. first, what you say is, again, the thing we sell you isn't broken the day you buy it with all this nonsense. It disappears in six months of BS like that. And further, the, the highest priority is you need to learn. And to, ha- to learn well, you need to have the tool that has been assigned to you for this course. Right. So if your belief is you don't want to pay for it, don't. But you're going to get the. But you're going to get the tool, right. or you're not in a position like you're barely scraping by just to get to law There's school. There's all, all kinds of reasons yeah. why you might decide you don't want to pay right. for it. it. You might have other budget priorities. Might, I'm, whatever, that's your decision. You're an adult. Make the decision for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and that, so that's the value proposition that we provide. Um, and uh, how that, many books? How many books do you have? Um, Roughly, order magnitude. We have. Four now, mm-hmm. and we're talking to people about additional titles, and and they're being adopted. Oh yes, and this is Th- these are high quality case books. Just th- to be clear, they right? are. I mean, James Grimmelman's 
internet law book is very popular because it's excellent. And, and so our listeners actually could just go, they look, our listeners, if they're just curious, go look, go look, download it, right? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, if you like it, you know, put something in the tip jar, right? <laughs> there you go. There's a way to do that, right? You could download it free right now and then come back. And, you could go and back pay. and go to the buying page and pay what you want and, right. and whatever. Uh, the Internet Law Book, lots of adoptions. Uh, the, the IP Survey Book, which was our first book that mm-hmm. Lydia and I co-wrote. Um, and there's sort of the separate story about that is, I mean, all of this started because she and I were colleagues at the same school. We'll, we'll link her up, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Lydia's yeah. great. She, we were colleagues at the same school. We were teaching. We were each teaching a section of IP survey, and we weren't particularly satisfied with the existing books out there. So much like you said at the beginning of the conversation, where everyone's adapting their own stuff anyway. Right. But we we were increasingly dissatisfied with the with the top selling IP survey books, which is perfectly fine. It's not that they're bad books; they just didn't work for us. Right. So we said, you know what? Let's do one on our own because that means we'll have a book that we like better. And that we will do better with because we because we think it's the way it should be. Yeah. And in addition, since we think the conventional casebook market is kind of screwed up and doesn't in, doesn't really work yeah. as well as it should for students, uh, let's create a new way of doing casebooks too. Yeah. <laughs> and we can use our first book as the first book. So we did, and 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 so we create. You know, we thought of a trademark and created the web page. Um, with the help of a web developer, who of course we paid, um, and because it's a company, it's our. And so we invested in the what the company needed to be, uh, and you know, I, I think it's I think it's really fun, and I I like that we continue to develop titles, uh, but you know, it's not like there's a huge company, right? Um, so it, it's it's a slow process. We'd love to have more titles. Uh, you, you know, the weird thing about academia, what? Um, I'm just thinking about this because if if I published a book through your um, company, mm-hmm. I would get some kind of credit. You don't get as much like academic credit for case books as you do, but it would be like it could go on the resume in a pretty clear way, right? Yes, or the CV. And uh, um, furthermore, if I had written an article about Hydrotext describing it, I could get credit for that. That's true get basically no academic credit for actually building hydrotext <laughs> or for the things I produce. Right. Because it's not, out. you know, you, if you were a master's student in computer science, which I am not, or, um, or a master's student in education, I am not that either. You might've gotten credit for it. And that on that ground, yeah. As a project for yeah. uh, that's, and, and, you know, well, we all make different choices, and and I, I, I love just, but I just think people should do things. That's what I love your the, project too. I mean, just right. Like we you, just you, you see a problem. We like, like one of the one of the great benefits of the position that we hold is that we are empowered to right. do well by our students to do good things. Yes, and part of why the the sort of net neutrality and open internet stuff is so important to me is that I have lived the reality of having an idea and being able to go to this infrastructure for you know there's a payment agent called paypal the pdf standard exists you can put up a web page that uses the protocols that all web pages use people can get pdfs from your web page all this stuff exists and we didn't need to pay a gatekeeper to get permission right to do now linking back to a sort of a separate layer here um and your fair use caveat 
you know, another thing that makes this perhaps easier in the law school market than it would be in many others is some of the most predominant and important raw material for these educational materials are uh, law cases, case reports. Yeah. Um, and those Decisions of courts. Yes. And those are not covered by copyrights. Right. So when you've got sources available like Google Scholar and the predecessors of Google Scholar that have made case reports widely and easily available in electronic form, right? Uh, those public domain materials, you can easily go grab them, drop them into your word processor, edit them. You've got now you're building the basics of the case, right? Where you right. use the hydrotext as a tool for editing your case. So the fact that you're not having to fight your way through a copyright permission right. layer as you're developing those materials, that's, that's another thing that makes it really easy to do in the law context. Now, now my suggestion that we, um, I think it should already cover this as, a, as an interpretation matter, but the, I advocate for a statute which makes clear that that any material used in an educational context, which is not itself prepared for the educational market, represents a fair use. Um, that'll have to wait for another show. Yes. But I think that's very important. I think the licensing hell that educators find themselves in is yes. just shooting our nation in its like in its foot, which I guess is Florida. <laughs> I think if there's a foot, it's probably yeah. Florida, right? And, and it is... Um, or Maine. I mean, let's not be northern hemispherists, right? right. So, there, yeah, there are these the the the, the permission culture and um, and the the kind of um, lost opportunities, yeah. Uh, that the the opportunities we lose because of fear and uncertainty or lack of resources or these other things. It 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 is, of course, is a story you could tell that someone who wanted to try to tell it would tell about, you know, wait a minute, you can aggregate things and the money can da 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 right? There's a, tra- so a traditional market person BS would tell us. That. That the, yeah. what? I call BS on that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, the, but whatever. So there's a, there's a story you can yeah, tell yeah, about yeah. that. Uh, that's not how, I don't, pr- I don't find that particularly compelling. Um, what, what, but obviously, as I've said, Semaphore Press is in some ways, very traditional. So we want our individual authors by name. We want them to feel the things that you, the the rewards you get out of knowing that people know they're using a book that you made. Yeah. Um, and, and we do ask for payment and we do receive payment. Right. And so, uh, that, um, that's not inconsistent with the notion that, um, it it could be zero um, because again we we do let people decide. But I, I think that, that's a long term thing. I mean, I certainly do it already in my classes. I mean, I I don't I can't see myself ever assigning materials that cost money again. But um, if I did, I would use your books, and I think more people will will adopt that kind of model, and the price will go down because of pressure yeah. from competitors like you. And that's all a good thing. It's just yeah. in the long run, I think you should go out of business. Cool. Um, <laughs> no, and in a better world, there might be we we wouldn't have even done this because it would have already been the, the way that you've described. Right, right. Um, I, I think that's right. If, if um, the, and again, we're, we're sort of bracketing um, for, for another day, this, this, this sort of, um, the role of attribution in this economy. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and, and we got to bracket that one because it's just, it's a big, 
but it's we, a difference. It's a thing yeah. that separates wh- how we do I mean, it. And we how in you the academy, it. and maybe even teachers K twelve, are weird kind of workers in terms of like what our incentives are. Yeah, and so it's it's uh, that that's a whole conversation. I think I do want to say one more thing in this show, though. I want to get your reaction to one cool. more thing. Uh, and so I think it was necessary to lay out all this out on the table to let people know what we see as the problem, what the kinds of things we've done personally to try to do something about what we see as a as a problem. Uh, but it's been in the news recently because one of the major textbook publishers in right. one of their major textbooks, this is the Duke Minier property book, uh, property law book, uh, attempted to. Well, do you want to describe it? Do you know it better than I do? Exactly what they're trying to do. I can, I can describe do. it. I mean, um, they were, and before I describe, I do want to say yeah, one, one other thing because, in terms of closing the circle on printing, so, um, so we again, we don't sell print copies at Semaphore Press. We we sell PDFs. Um, people, of course, because there's no DRM, you can print as much or as little of it as you want. Sure. And people do. And you can get in a group and print it, like, you know. Correct. Yeah. So, and we even provide on the website, um, if, you're, if you go to a, a, a copy shop and they have concerns about printing it, because it looks like it's a book written by somebody right. else. You should go to another copy shop. Well, there's that. But we also provide a letter that you can download at our webpage, yeah. a letter from us as the publisher, explaining to the copy shop oh, that's that they have permission to print it. Have people used that before? Have you gotten feedback on that? Uh, they know. might have. I don't, we don't know. That's great. Um, but we provide it in case someone needs it. Okay. So tell um, me about this weird So yeah. So thing, Aspen... Uh, well, which they reversed, as I understand it, right? Just, okay. I th- let us I think know. it was a rolling disclosure. And so it's, it's not <laughs> clear whether or not they had that thing's... That where they wound up was where they thought they would wind up, right? And we and because it's within a corporate thing, we don't know, and we because we don't work at that corporation. Right, so what are they and trying if to we do? We did, we wouldn't be. Yeah. Able what, to what, what are they trying to do? Well, so what they did was, uh, uh, so Walters Kluwer, which publishes the Aspen line of case books, uh, announced that they had for a number of books, one of which was this very popular, long-standing, popular, probably the leading property law case book in the United States. Duke Manier, career, et cetera. I always use Singer, by the way, before. Yeah, I, I've I, never I, ta- I, I haven't taught out of Duke Manier. I taught out of I. Singer one time and out of um, uh, Tom Merrill and Henry Smith's book, which is it's fantastic. Great book. Yeah, great book. Yeah. Um, I loved both of them um, for very different reasons. But uh, Yeah, me too. So, so Aspen publishes this book. So th- it was one of the titles where the, what they were going to do is this. Aspen has a... a an inter- a web-based phase of support for a casebook. I wish we could translate your hand gestures here. I think that would help the listeners. <laughs> and it has the paper book itself. Okay. And I don't, because I've not asked my students to use this electronic thing, which I think, I can't remember what it's called. I think it might be like a, something Connect, Aspen Connect yeah. or Education Connect. Or something. Yeah. So, Who cares? We can call it whatever we want. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, a thing that you could get as a... We'll call as, it Aspen Rental Center. <laughs> as a casebook user. And you could also get a paper book. But then what they're going to do is create this new thing where you would, for, a, for, the, for, the, for one price, you would get the paper book. Right. And you would get access to the e-platform, the web-based book. And the second, the web-based one, would last, quote, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, which in the internet is un- an uncertain thing because right. companies come and go, yeah, and, yeah. you know. Um, uh, but the paper book, you would be obliged to return. That the terms of the purchase would be that the paper book is only being rented, right? Uh, 
but that the ebook is the one you get to keep. Now, of course, what this would because do... Because the ebook is tied to you as a person. You can't sell your right to access the ebook correct, to someone else, right? right. If, you, okay. if you gave someone else your password to the book, you would undoubtedly be violating the terms of a contract and so, that yeah. you had agreed to when you entered into this arrangement in the first place. One way of seeing the goal here, and we don't know what's in there. You know, I'm not going to try to read their state of mind. But what this allows is for the company to sell a new book, essentially, to every single student. It kills off the used book market. It certainly greatly impairs it. Um, and and that, that first sale, that used book market, which is supported in copyright law in the United States by a very specific statute, uh, which provides the buyer of a book or other copyrighted work the right to sell it again, st- statutorily a right, um, uh, that codified a very old Supreme Court case about this notion woven into the fabric of IP that the IP owner gets one bite at that apple and then the buyer of the law- lawfully authorized thing, off- the authorized embodiment, gets to use it, sell it, etc. This is why I can sell my old DVD collection. I can sell my old books. Yeah. I can give them away. It's why there are yard sales and eBay and all kinds of... It's why there's a used market for anything, Right? is this first sale idea. Yeah, it's, it's um, funny how people take things for granted, right? I think most people take for granted that it's almost a natural right, that if I buy something... It's, it's my mine freaking thing. to do. I can take it apart if I want. <laughs> I can, I can repurpose it. I can. And sell if it when again. I bought it, and if when I bought it, I bought it under circumstances that make it clear that the person who had the right in creating it, whether it's a trademark owner who has a brand that's stamped on it, or whether it's a copyright owner who pro- produced the book on the pages, or whether it's a patent owner who made the who owns the patent on the invention embodied by that machine, whatever, right? They totally were in charge of it. It was lawful sale. It was lawfully produced. No, yeah. they haven't been harmed in any way in that sense. They sell it. Now it's mine. Right. And if I want to resell it, I get to resell it. If I want to use it till it falls apart, like so many men do with their favorite shirt, wear it till it falls apart. Yeah, right? my point is that, that's a, that uh, it's important that people understand that's a policy choice. That Absolutely. could be taken away because I think people take for granted that they just – and maybe that taking for granted means that they react strongly to uh, transgressions to it. Right. Um, but there are lots of things we now take for granted which at one point were like uncertain choices. For example, you know, the, the Sony case way back when, this was the, the case that established your right to tape on your VCR, yeah. you know, shows for your – you know, in order to time shift it or even sure. for maybe other purposes. Like that right. was a 5-4 decision, wasn't it? It was. And, and, and so, indeed, it was held over for re-argument. It was had actually almost came out the other way. One justice the other way, and v- the sale of VCRs. That I, you know, who knows how the market would have responded to this, but right. uh, would not have been legal. At least copyright law might have prevented you from buying blank right. tapes, and, and then you know, TiVo and all these other things would have been in very, you know, very uncertain waters. So, so these are these yes. are choices to be made. They're important policy choices, and it's a pervasive choice. In, in, in fields affected by intellectual property law, because it is true of all types of IP. Is, right. This, this kind of goes also to Lessig's patent, about, copyright, trademark. Right. That people are, that these new technologies, which are changing the nature of the goods that we're consuming, or at least they're, they're transformed into digital analogs. Right. Gives the producers of those things opportunities to manipulate the way they're consumed in such a way that they kind of take away, or at least might take away this long this assumption that we have about yeah. how we can use things so they get to and that's raise the danger here so they get to raise the question the producers of course 
uh, when it serves their private interest to raise the question anew. Well, look, right. just because there's a first sale right for paper books, should there be one for e-books? If it advantages them to raise the question in the hope that it'll be answered differently in a way that they privately gain from, of course they're going to raise the question. And and they will push for the answer that benefits them. We, because we're in the same society as they are, and they're raising an issue of social policy, we should answer it too. So people are We really, should come up yeah. with the way we think yeah. it's right, and we should debate it, and we should make a, as good a decision as we can. I want to make a point here about this, though, because I think a lot of people reacted very negatively to this huge firestorm yeah. among law professors this to this uh, development. It's basically a rental model, right? It's basically a rental model. Oh, got a little Darcy. People have been Thank demanding you, Darcy. Darcy. Uh, basically a little, uh, uh, so, so this, it's basically a rental model, although you can keep access to the web, but who knows what that means. Okay. Right. So, uh, they're trying to get rid of the first sale. And in response and- to this firestorm, they made it more clear that you could still buy the paper-based book and keep it for up, up the same price. So they backed away from the notion because one of the reactions people had was, well, oh my God, does that mean that if I adopt that title for my students, they will not be able to buy the paper-based book and keep it if they want to and resell it if they want to the way they used to be able to do. Because the, there was a fear that that was this new model was going to completely replace what the pre-existing model. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We're going to do both ways of doing it in parallel. So somewhat cheaper if you buy, if you go rental. Not clear. Might be the same okay, price. Well, so I think that this is tied to what the way we started the conversation. Cool. Because I think if I just imagine that imagine there were really a competitive market. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not making any judgments about this. But imagine though that it was more like your commoditized market at the beginning. That right. you imagined. thousands of producers right. selling to thousands of buyers. Right. So unless you have a really really great casebook that stands out distinctively as almost a different product. You're not going to be able to charge much more for your textbook than the cost of producing the textbook, right? So right. it's a, we're not going to have $200 casebooks if, no. if that were the case, right? If that were the no. market. And for various reasons, you might they might not be collusive or anything else. We don't really have that market. But if we did, imagine it, all the all of the producers are focused on ways to reduce their costs of production and increase their profits in that competitive market right yeah and we want them to do that we want them to find cheaper it and of course imagine we do. we're in the printed book world for a second just you know i right. don't like the printed book but imagine we're in that printed book world and they're gonna try to find cheaper ways to print cheaper ways to transport books uh you know you can imagine uh if if technology were in a state that you couldn't print on both sides of the paper the first company which figures out how to print on both sides of the paper has a real advantage right right so they're gonna uncover- and of course because of those competitive pressures those uh, technological innovations will diffuse through the industry yeah. because if you don't figure out how to print on both sides of the paper you're toast yeah. you're going to go out of business exactly right so the because some because one of them can do it exactly you can- so there's all sorts of incentives that drive the innovations out into all the producers and dri- quality keeps going up price keeps coming down it's to- this is why antitrust law is so awesome because you get to learn about the the very important forces of competitive yeah. innovation that we're trying to keep forced into ev- we're trying to keep this pressure on everybody well, because it's very good for consumers. So here's my point, though. If we were in that market, that competitive market, um, where people were looking at looking for ways to reduce the costs of production, so they can make that small, you know, maybe a slightly larger increment of profit before other people caught up to it, and someone had the bright idea, we can actually print and sell more textbooks, which will reduce the costs of printing, if people don't buy used copies. 
right? In other words, if we can rent to at least a certain segment of the, we'll be able to print more, increase our uh, the volume of our production, and take advantage of economies of scale, and therefore be able to lower our prices. And so I think that if the rental scheme were introduced in a competitive market and came at a discount, I'm not sure that people would be, I don't know if offended is the right word, but I think people would be much more open to it because it would be a transparent attempt to return consumer surplus to people who preferred it. I think that's absolutely right. And the best, and the best piece of evidence that it's absolutely right is, um, is Amazon has developed textbook rental offerings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that suggests there are ways to work out the economics of sharing some of the additional surplus generated by these innovations. It's already happening. Yeah, not too clear why in that case, though. But I, you know, uh, not to me either. Yeah. But of course, I'm not in. The, I'm not. Uh, I'm. I'm not a participant in. Uh, in those very specific portions of the marketplace. I was hoping you disagree, so that you know, for listener Alan, uh, you know, he would be. <laughs> Happy to hear some <laughs> argument on oral argument. No, and here's why. And here's the other reason. I we argued a lot last week. Though, we did. We? Yeah. Here's the reason. Here's the, the the reason that I don't disagree further is that again, you've described a situation where that's one company who's trying to offer a different quality adjusted price thing. There are still people who are who are not renting out their books. They're just selling yeah, their books. Lots of substitutes. Right. So, right. So you've got people making different choices with different offerings and it's not a, a small number of producers trying to knock out an annoying thing that cuts into their margin, which is yeah. how the Aspen move was perceived. What do you think of that wasp that's flying around in here? I think it's a little scary, <laughs> but it doesn't seem too interested in us. And my hope yeah. for you as the owner of this home is right. that it is not the indicator that there is a nest in here somewhere. Uh, well, if there were, it'd be all right. But you'll find that out at some point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's gotten, One way or the other. <laughs> uh, uh, it's gotten hot here, hasn't it, Joe? Yeah, well, yeah, we're in the warm season now for sure. This episode is already very long, but I'm having a lot of fun in this discussion. I think it's a good discussion, and it's well, an it's important we, discussion. It, it's something we both care about. It is. Care enough to have, like, try to, to do something different. To have tried new things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think that's right. And, and I, yeah, I, I, I hate the heat. And so uh, <laughs> as the discussion winds down, I start thinking, well, you know, and my son just texted me. Oh, cool. What's up with him? He wants me to go pick him up. Okay. He has his bike. But it's hot. It's hot. And, yeah. you know... It's not like he's a 15-year-old boy. No, you ride the bike in the you ride the bike, you do get some wind from the <laughs> from the bike, right? You do get a cooling breeze that you yourself are creating. But is that enough to cool you down from the work you're doing to generate the forward movement of the bike? That's the issue. Um, right? I can attest to this as someone who rides his bike to work every day. Um, the wind is not enough to compensate. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Especially not at these temperatures. I mean, let me just say, let's, let's end the show like this. Let's, okay. end, let's end the show with a peek inside. This is a, uh, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to lift the kimono this week. <laughs> is that what is it? Is it lift or is it part? What is it? I don't, I, I don't know. What that I don't is. know. I, it's, open the kimono. It's probably, yeah, it's really, I don't, know. I don't even like, I hate that expression. Hi, Christian. <laughs> is that, can we end the show that way? Well, we, we could, but um, I want to read, I think the listener should experience some of what it's like for me to raise a 15-year-old boy. Oh, okay. Um, this could get very dark, listeners. Well, you want me to read these text messages? Yeah, I want you to do what you feel good about. <laughs> Can you come get me instead of uh, me biking home? First of all, my biking home. 
Anyway, um, it's incredibly hot. We've been working on blank spike, where blank is the name of his friend. Yeah. Okay. And of course, I don't respond because I'm I'm taping the show. Right. We're in the middle of something. No, I'm not. I, you know, my listeners are my first priority while the show is being taped. And that wasp. And I don't want to have to ride home, he says in a separate text. <laughs> and then a pause while he does not receive anything from me. First of all, this is, you know, he wasn't dying. There's no emergency here. Right. Never mind, period. End of text. Mm. Huh. Maybe he's decided that he does possess the stamina to bike a mile home or a mile and a half home. Right. Does he? What do you think, Joe? Or maybe he's being, maybe he's decided to relocate to the friend's home as his permanent residence. Well, what do you think the next text is? Uh, no clue. It's fine, period. Nana's coming, period. <laughs> Outmaneuvered. Oh, boy. Right, what do you do with that, Joe? Uh, I, I, don't, I suppose you could congratulate him on his enterprising use of alternative means of transportation. Huh. Yeah. All right. Hey, we got anything else to talk I about? I don't got to live with the kid, though, so... Uh, I think he should bike home. Yeah. Look, he's a good kid. Look, I yes, I, I love him. He's a fantastic son. Um, he drives me up the wall sometimes. <laughs> and, That's and, part and, of his job, and vice versa. That's part of his and job. vice versa. Can you imagine having me for a dad, Joe? I can't. Oh my god, I'd hate it. Yeah. Are <laughs> right, do we have? <laughs> <laughs> the, the parenting yeah. show is the is a different podcast we're doing. Yeah. yeah, at some point. I think you'd be great on a parenting show, Joe. Oh my god, me? Yeah. I'm not a parent. Yeah, but, but it would make for great make for great radio. Oh, that could be. Yeah. Uh Hi I, Christian. 